0: Well, good morning, friends. Uh, To those of you that are out in the uh, foyer, I'm going to invite you to grab your beverages and come on back in and take your seats. And we'll continue with our teaching time together this morning. Uh, My name's Brad. I'm part of the teaching and leadership team here at Jericho Ridge, and it's our privilege and pleasure, if you're visiting, to have you with us here. And uh, as we come back in, for those of you who are in here now, we're going to play a little bit of music trivia while uh, we're waiting for people to come in. So uh, music trivia, I'm going to whistle or attempt to whistle a song and you're going to tell me what the lyrics to that song are, all right? So music trivia time at Jericho Ridge, okay? So uh, I'll whistle it and you'll tell me what the lyrics are. What what was the part before that? Na 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 right? Do you know that song? That song. That's that's 4 minutes of the song actually. It's just na 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 na. Hey Jude. Um the the 1968 Beatles classic Hey Jude is an intriguing song. It was actually recorded during a time of Um, incredible tumultuousness in the band's history. Uh, The Beatles were in the middle of recording their uh, first album, their self-titled album uh, called The White Album. And there was an argument that broke out between Paul McCarthy and George Harrison over the guitar part in this song. It almost broke up the Beatles it was that bad. Ringo Starr actually left the band for a while because he couldn't handle that much tension going on in the studio, and he came back just before they filmed a promotional clip for the single. At the same time as this was happening, John Lennon was going through a lot of relational turmoil in his marriage and in his life. In fact, the song Hey Jude was originally titled Hey Jules," and it was written Uh, by Lennon to his son, Julian, and it was talking about, uh, uh, like, don't be sad and be happy, and it was written, actually, to comfort his son after Lennon left his wife for Yoko Ono. But the band kind of couldn't agree on that as the lyrical focus of the song, so it became Hey Jude uh, again. And it kind of morphed as they worked on it more into an anthem of kind of positivity and take sad things and make them glad. And they invited the crowds and studio audiences to sing along with them. And uh, that's how the song was kind of born and was still performed uh, by uh, members of the Beatles. Um, Incidentally, Hey Jude was the first uh, single and the first piece of music ever released on their Apple record label, and it was also the first tune ever recorded on 8-track. Some of you, yeah. Some of you that are young adults will not know what 8-track is. And so you may need to go home or Google it, look it up, and see what in the world is 8-track? The first car that we ever had in our house growing up had an 8-track player uh, in it. But there was this massive piece of equipment that was new to the recording industry where you could record multiple tracks and blend them together. And so they uh, hopped on that and, and used that for recording. And despite all of the kind of tumultuous things happening behind the scenes in the band, Hey Jude actually was an incredible success as a song. It was the top-selling single of 1968 in the UK, the US, and Canada, and in the Australia. And in Australia, and in 2003, uh, Billboard 2013, Billboard magazine was asked to rate the top 10 songs of chart success over the last uh, number of decades, and Hey Jude came in as the 10th biggest song of all time in terms of chart successes. So it's a big song, it's a big deal for the Beatles in uh, the late 60s. But this morning, and over the course of the next couple of weeks, we're going to use some of the language of music to focus on another Jude, uh, the book of Jude in the New Testament. And we're going to ask the question, because Jude asked the question, who are we listening to? Who are you listening to in your life? The book of Jude is um, kind of an underrated book in the New Testament. It's tucked away way towards the back, just before the book of Revelation. If you flip too fast or blink too fast, you miss it. It's one of the shortest books in the Bible, not the shortest book. That honor goes to Obadiah, and then there's a couple other short letters in the New Testament. Um, But it's one of the shortest books in the Bible. But... Jude asks some very intriguing and very important questions for both his first readers and then for us. Questions like, how do you know what you believe? Where did you get those ideas from? And what if you end up believing the wrong things? What are the consequences of that? Jude asks things like, if I um, do things that uh, maybe God wouldn't find advisable over and over and over again, which the Bible calls sin. If I sin too many times, could I lose my salvation? And Jude asks questions like, what is God like? So it's a short book, but it asks very important questions for us to consider. And the first thing when you look at a book of the Bible that can be helpful for us to understand is just a little bit of context. Who wrote this book? Who is this Jude person? Why does he have the authority to say these kinds of things? What do we know about Jude? Well, most of the New Testament is written in a format that we would call a letter. It's uh, a person writing to a group of people. And Jude, thankfully, introduces himself right at the start of his letter. And uh, so if you turn with me in your Bibles or on your devices, there's a reading bible in the jericho ridge app if you download that download that go to jude chapter one there is only one chapter so sometimes people just refer to it by verse numbers Uh, but jude chapter one verse one jude introduces himself this way this is a letter from jude a slave of jesus christ and a brother of james so jude is actually being really modest here, when he just sort of casually mentions that he's the brother of James and that he is a servant or a slave or someone who is obedient to uh, Jesus. And the reason he's being modest here is that the James that Jude references was actually the Bishop of Jerusalem in the first century and James and Jude were actually brothers and we know that both James and and Jude were brothers of Jesus so his credentials are actually very impressive in the gospel of Matthew chapter 13 uh, lists the fact that Jesus had brothers and James and Jude are named specifically among them and so James is, uh, Jude is the brother of James. We, we believe that he was an itinerant or traveling teacher in the first century, and he was actually the brother, or the half-brother, actually, of Jesus. Some of you, like me, know what it's like to have a half sibling and so Jude and James had Joseph as their earthly father and Mary as their earthly mother but Jesus is the eldest he's the firstborn and we know from the gospel accounts that there were actually other siblings that Jesus had sisters and one of the things that that is intriguing that we don't get any insight into in the gospel accounts is what in the world would it have been like to grow up with Jesus as your brother To have shared a room with Jesus or been in the same household as Jesus, the incarnate son of God, the second person of the Trinity. You you can picture Jude running around going, mom, Jesus left the toilet seat up again. And Mary comes in and says, Jesus, did you leave it up? And Jesus says, no, I didn't. And Mary says, well, that settles it because he's not lying. But the most interesting thing to me to consider, those are just idle speculation, (laughs) obviously, but one of the most interesting things to consider that we do know is that Jesus' family, his brothers in particular, did not receive his ministry and his testimony about his identity well during his earthly life. They were not among those who followed him while he was alive and teaching. They were not among the disciples listening to his ministry. They were not at the foot of the cross on Good Friday with him. They were not those who ran to the empty tomb to see if he was alive. And so for a whole season of their lives, as siblings of Jesus, they were not convinced that Jesus was who he said he was. And then, at some point, something shifted for them. They moved from a place of skepticism, a place of antagonism, into a place of belief. And so Jude's writing, maybe 25 years after the events of Easter, and saying, I consider myself a follower, a slave, a servant, a disciple of Jesus, a person who has committed my life to humble, obedient service to God. It's a fascinating journey to think about. That journey that Jude went on from skepticism to belief. And some of you may have made that journey. Some of you maybe made that journey as a child, or as a teenager. Some of you made it as an adult. Some of you are still on that journey, and you're not really sure where you stand as it relates to the whole question of who Jesus is. But one of the things that I find comforting, and Jude's going to speak to this later on, is that Jesus' own brothers, his own family members, who were up close and personal with him, had their doubts and questions. And one of the things that I think this helps us understand is that it can be hard to believe the extraordinary about the familiar. When we're really comfortable with something or someone, we have a saying for that in English. We say, familiarity breeds what? Contempt. Familiarity breeds, instead of sometimes embracing something, It. breeds a sense of, I wanna push away from this. I'm not sure about this. And so sometimes when we're too close to something for too long, we are less impressed by it than people who are new to the encounter. And this can happen in all kinds of areas of our lives, but I think it's particularly prevalent when it comes to church or religion. Because you can hang around church or church people for years and years and years and things get kind of familiar you know the rhythms you know the right things to say you know when people are going to pray and how they're going to pray and what the right words are sometimes to use and the whole Jesus thing can become so familiar that it becomes even a little bit well trite almost you can lose that sense of the wonder And the mystery that Lindsay talked about is evident when she goes to a place like Benin and watches people's lives being changed in the power of prayer and the sacrifice that people are making to see the gospel advance. Sometimes it can be very hard to believe the extraordinary about the familiar. And this seems to be the case with Jude. During Jesus' life and earthly ministry, he had difficulty believing. And yet at some point in his life, he came to the place where he recognized and affirmed that his half-brother was indeed who he claimed to be, that he was indeed God in human flesh, here to reveal God's love for us. And so this transformation in Jude's life, in his own faith journey, Though he doesn't hint at it specifically in the book, asks a good question for us as we think about and start into this, and that is, what do you believe? What has your faith journey been like? Maybe there are things for you, very specific things, that might hold you back from that place of embracing God as the one you want to listen to and follow, holding you back from that place of discipleship. What do you believe about Jesus? Maybe if familiarity for you has bred contempt, and maybe today would be the day where you would ask God to say, you know what, I want to see with fresh eyes. I want to hear with fresh ears the things that are true about you, and I want to believe. That's a prayer of faith. Faith that anyone can make, doesn't matter how far you think you are away from God, that is a prayer that God will always respond to. God, I believe, help my unbelief. Jude went on that journey and that place of exploration. But I wanna suggest to you that one of the most, um, one of the things that makes Jude's testimony credible is actually the fact that he was so up close and personal with Jesus. He would have seen and observed things that other non-eyewitnesses could not account for and provide. And we stand um, at Jericho Ridge in an Anabaptist tradition, a Mennonite Brethren church. And what that means, one of the tenets of Anabaptism is that we look at things through the lens of Jesus. When we say to ourselves, What is God like? our lens and our focus is going to be on Jesus, on his life and his writings, his teaching. And we want to know what Jesus is like. And so if for you that's fuzzy in any way, one of the powerful things to do would be to say, well, if you want to know what someone's like, ask someone in their family." Ask their brother if they have one. Ask their sister if they have a sibling. They'll give you unique insights. And so Jude, I think, gives us some unique and credible insights into what Jesus is like and therefore some first-person insights into the heart of God. And so I love how Jude starts his letter in uh, verse 1 and verse 2. He says, I'm writing to all of you who have been called by God the Father, who loves you, and is keeping you safe in the care of Jesus Christ. May God give you more and more mercy and peace and love. See, Jude wants us right away to understand a few things up front. First of all, God loves you. God loves you. and that God is calling you God is desiring to be in a vital and real-time relationship with you as an individual that he created. Because Jude says, God's deepest desire is for you to experience God's mercy and God's peace and God's love. You are loved, you are loved, you are loved. You are invited to the table. You are kept secure in God's grace. And Jude needs to set... In a right frame of reference because most of this letter is corrective in nature to help people that are kind of drifting away and thinking weird and unusual things about Jesus and about his life and Jude saying to them come on back. I'm bringing you back in. You gotta know what's true about God. Some other people are out there teaching things that are not true. What is true about God is his love for you. What is true about God is God's desire to call to you and to be in a real-time relationship with you and his desire for you to experience mercy and peace and love. And he's gonna keep coming back to this over and over. So hold that in your mind about what Jude wants us to know up front. Because then right away in verse 3, Jude says, uh, Dear friends, I had been eagerly planning to write to you about the salvation that we all share. But now I find I must write about something else. So this is kind of a little funny kind of piece of the New Testament. This is not the letter we have in our contemporary New Testament is not the letter Jude first sat down to write. He was going to write something else, but then he received some information that he decided, whoa, 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 the longer letter has to wait. I just need to get a letter out to these guys and let them know of what's going on. He wanted to write, you know, a letter that was encouraging and upbeat in tone. Na, 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 na. He wanted everybody to get really encouraged. But he ended up having to write this letter, which is a little bit different because it expresses some areas of concern. He says, I must write you about something else, urging you to defend the faith that God has entrusted once for all to his holy people. I say this because some ungodly people have wormed their way into your churches saying that God's marvelous grace allows us to live immoral lives. And he's gonna come back to this theme time and again. But Jude wanted to write a much longer book that was encouraging, and then he ended up writing a short, kind of series of tweets, essentially, if you want to think about it that way. There's a bunch of little thoughts that Jude collects together around two main concerns. And the two concerns that Jude wants to highlight are false teaching and false teachers. And so these are the things that Jude has heard about and that concern him so much that he just starts firing up his phone and tweeting away if he lived in our day and time. And we're going to leave the second concern till next week, false teachers. And this morning, we're going to look at Jude's definition of false teaching. How would we recognize it? What should we do about it? because this has incredible relevance for us today. And the reason I think it has relevance for us today is hardly a week goes by where on some social media platform that I'm on, someone is criticizing someone else and saying to them, you're a heretic, you're leading people astray, decrying that that person's theology is bad, evil, and wrong, that you should burn all of their books if you own any of them, you should delete them and ignore all of their tweets. You know, you should make sure that other people are protected from their unwise advice, whatever. There's like a, a little industry, a cottage industry on heret- heretic prevention, naming and protect, uh, and, and some of that is probably warranted and justified. But how do you know, is Jude's question. What would be the litmus test that you would use to recognize false teaching? Why is it even dangerous? And what are you going to do about it? So Jude says, all right, I've written some things down for you that are going to help you in this category. And Jude is a good preacher. He has a three-point sermon with three case studies and then a three-fold definition of false teaching and why it's dangerous for it. So we're going to dive into his case studies because that's where he goes first. So verse 5, he opens up with his first Case study, which is about Israel and the Exodus. Um, he's writing to people that are very, very well familiar with Jewish writings and thinking and teaching. These people that are Jude's listeners and his first readers would have really known their Old Testament. So he doesn't actually give a lot of context or detail as we might like. Or for us, we're maybe even less familiar with some of his stories. But his first one is in Jude chapter 1, verse 5 about the Exodus. He says, I want to remind you, though you already know these things already, that Jesus first rescued the nation of Israel from Egypt, an interesting Trinitarian reference there, right? We look at it and say, well, God led the people of Israel out. And Jude says, yeah, I know, but don't forget that God is three in one, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so Jesus was present, leading the people and rescuing the nation of Israel from Egypt. But later, he destroyed those who did not remain Faithful, or those who were faithful did not proceed into the land and receive the things that they had promised. So the story of Exodus for Jude becomes his first case study. And the story of Exodus is this story from history where God performs a miraculous intervention in the lives of the people of Israel. Hundreds of years they're enslaved in Egypt, And then God intervenes and listens to their prayers and through Moses and Moses' leadership and the miraculous intervention of God, there's millions of people that are led out from under the oppression and dehumanization of slavery and they're on this journey to the land that God has promised them. And in the book of Exodus, which tells this story, we see how God's power is so evident and intervenes to change the heart of a king who does not want to let his labor force go out of the country. And then he changes his mind and God leads them out. And then they're trapped at the edge of the Red Sea and the army of Egypt comes after them and they all freak out and say, we're gonna die, Moses, we're gonna die. And God says, Moses, don't worry about it. I'm going to continue to lead you. And God opens up a way through the sea of reeds and the people walk through. And then when the Egyptians try it, they are consumed by the sea. And God does miraculous thing after miraculous thing for the people of Egypt. He feeds them in the desert day after day. God leads them and protects them from enemies by a pillar of fire. And on and on and on it goes. And yet Jude doesn't seem to have a very positive reference point for this story. And the reason is that there's a tiny problem with the story of the rescue mission, that is. And that is that it does not go the way that you might think a rescue mission would go. Within a few short days, the people whom God has saved from incredible oppression... Their, their children are being killed. They're being forced to be dehumanized slaves to build someone else's empire. Within 40 days of being set free from this, they're back to grumbling and saying, this is ridiculous. What are we doing? I want to go back to Egypt. There's a movement to go back. Within 40 months, there's open and active rebellion time and time and time again against Moses' leadership, against God's provision for them, They just decide, you know what? We're going to challenge God and all of God's leaders time and time again. And that will come up again next week, one of the stories of rebellion. And then after 40 years of wandering, still at the edge of the promised land, God sends them out into it. They get a piece of it. They get their eyes set on it. And they go, you know what? We can't do it. After all of the things that God has done for them and led them through, They rebel against God and they decide they're going to hightail it back to Egypt. And so God says, that's it, we're finished here. If you're going to continue to persist in rebellion over and over and over again, if you're going to grumble and complain and rebel, I will just give you exactly what you want. Try to go back to Egypt. And they wander in the desert for 40 years and all of them, with the exception of Joshua and Caleb, end up dead. Because they refuse to believe God's promise. They refuse to walk in obedience to God's leading and his guidance. And we read a story like that and we think to ourselves, oh, those stupid Israelites. I would never do that. I mean, I would just be filled with so gratitude for all that God had done for me. But I don't know about you, I can think of numerous occasions in my life where God has done something incredibly powerful, rescued me from something or um, I've made a decision, and, and God has led and guided so clearly, and yet within days of it, I'm back at doing something stupid again. Or I'm like, yeah, that was probably me, and because I was so awesome, that probably didn't have that much to do with God. I mean, we're, we fall into the same traps over and over and over again. Right after God answers a prayer, I'm back griping about how God never does anything for me. You see, friends, the story of Israel is our story. There are times when God does amazing things for groups of people. And within a few months, they've forgotten about it. I think that's one reason why it's important for us to tell the stories of God's faithful provision to us here at Jericho Ridge. I mean, gang, the story of God getting us into this building is a story of miraculous proportions of God's work in incredible and faithful ways. And yet within a few months of moving into this building, we could already be grumbling and saying, you know, owning this building thing is rubbish. It was way easier when we were at the LEC. I mean, my ministry didn't take as much work when I was at the LEC. Let's go back to the LEC Our story is the story of Israel in that our actions, our attitudes, our hearts so often mirror theirs. But Jude wants to make sure that we catch the lesson here so that we don't end up repeating it. And the lesson of Israel is that it would be unwise for us to deny God's goodness and push away God's guidance. Do not deny God's goodness and his guidance. See, friends, when God frees you from something, whether it's an addiction, whether it's whatever it is that you've been asking God for, when God's marvelous grace is evident in your life, when God protects you, Friends, that is the time to celebrate it. That's the time to memorialize it. That's the time to write about it, to sing about it, to talk about it with your kids and with others, to blog about it. Whatever it takes for you to keep that in your mind and in your heart and in your head because we have such a tendency to forget God's good work in our lives. I mentioned this before, but I have a friend, the way he does this is uh, at the camp that we went to growing up as kids, far out in the bush, he has a tree and it's like a little Christmas tree for him. And whenever God does something incredible in his life, he, he fashions like an ornament, almost like a Christmas ornament of that event. And he takes it way out into the woods and he hangs it on that tree. And that is his tree of remembering what God did for him. God spared him miraculously from a car crash. He took the twisted hood ornament from his car, hung it on the tree and said, every time I go there, I thank God for sparing my life because I could have been dead. What is your place or your practice for remembering God's goodness and God's guidance? Because when we forget, the story becomes all about us and not about God. And when that happens, we have lost our way. Practice God's goodness, reciting God's goodness and kindness to you. So that's his case study number one. Then Jude makes another case study, and this one is uh, takes the lens back and looks at the story of angels. Look with me at Jude chapter one, verse six. Jude says, "I want to remind you of the angels." who did not stay within the limits of the authority that God gave to them, but they left the place where they belonged. God has kept them securely chained in prisons of darkness, waiting for the great day of judgment. Now again, we look at this and we scratch our heads and think, what in the world is Jude talking about? Angels imprisoned in places? of darkness but see jude's readers are deeply familiar with the old testament and the old testament tells us the story in the book of job and in several other places as to the origin of the demonic and demonic beings see demons were once angels spiritual beings who lived in the presence of God and whose role in the created order is to carry out God's good purposes and plans for all of the world. And God gave angels great power and great spiritual authority, but he also gave them something that when he created humanity, he gave to us, and that is free will. And so we don't know when this happened, but we know that at some point they because they were not created like robots but with a capacity to choose some of the angels did not even though they had great power and authority wanted more they wanted to step beyond what God had given to them and we're not told when this happened but we are told why we're told that there was a coup attempt in heaven and it didn't work because God is almighty and more powerful than any angel or any demon. And so God threw those angels and the leader of that rebellion out of heaven. And that is the origin of the demonic because the demonic is still present in our world today. Just like the angels, some of these angelic beings rebelled and Jude is helping remind us that those that are demonic are restricted in their power and in their liberty. He's not saying that they're chained physically in prisons of darkness, that they are literally stuck in some dark prison and chained. He's saying that even though they have incredible authority because God created them as supernatural beings, they do not have ultimate authority. They have a limit to their authority. They don't have ultimate freedom to do whatever they want. They're on a leash They're like a rabid, destructive creature bent on destroying God's good plans for the world and for your life. But they are limited in their authority. And they're also limited in terms of their time frame, Jude says. At the day of judgment, their clock runs out. So Jude gives this insight into why we have these supernatural encounters in our world. But why bring this up when it comes to false teaching? Because that's his topic, remember. He's trying to help us understand why false teaching is such a problematic piece. Why, what's his point about this case study? Well, one of the things I think Jude wants us to pay attention to is that question of why were these beings kicked out of heaven? And it's that they overreached. It was pride. They usurped their authority. They thought they knew better than God how to run the universe. And they were filled with pride and with envy. And ultimately, they paid the consequence for allowing those things to take root in them and consume them. And so one thing Jude is likely trying to remind us of here is saying, do not get cocky. Because pride goes before a fall. And pride is one of those original and root sins that leads to so many other things that are destructive in our lives. And the other thing Jude wants to help remind us of is it would be unwise for us to be getting complacent. Because false teaching, we've been warned about it, that it's going to happen. It's going to be present even in the church, Jude says. And so one of the ways of understanding how it might get there is understanding some of how the demonic might operate. Because false teaching takes place when we don't pay any attention. We don't have any discernment. And Jude's going to contrast that with a discerning spirit that the Holy Spirit gives to us but oftentimes false teaching happens when we claim like Rose reminded us of last week in her message that we have some kind of secret knowledge that we're pretty amazing and we know stuff that other people don't and that's really what happened in this instance with those angelic beings they're like you know what God doesn't know stuff we know stuff and God said that's it we're done you have a limit you're being kicked out of heaven And one of the things for us to be very attentive to is the fact that there is a limit to our knowledge and there is a limit to our authority that we can claim. And when we go beyond that and exceed that, we're stepping into places of folly and arrogance. And we commit the same mistake and sin as the angels did that became demonic forces. And so that's Jude's second case study, and it's a fairly sobering one for us to think about. And then the third case study that Jude gives is another sobering warning from the Old Testament and from history. And it's the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And this is a crazy story from the book of Genesis. And I wish I had more time to unpack it with us this morning. But it's a story of a relative of Abraham, a man named Lot and his family. And they live in these two twin cities known as Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham goes to visit Lot. And and Abraham is concerned as a person who is in right relationship with God about how wicked these cities have become how far they have strayed and and god says to abraham you know abraham these are really dangerous because these cities are influential they're spreading all kinds of really poisonous actions thoughts and ideas all through this area of the world and abraham and god have this discussion and abraham says okay but god would you spare them if we could find people who are righteous there And God says, yes, I would do that. And eventually, Abraham, uh, and God says, but there aren't that many righteous people in these cities, Abraham. And eventually, the number gets down so low that in these two very large cities, they cannot even find 10 people who are righteous. And the people in them, we know from history, show literally no restraint In anything, but particularly when it comes to their sexual appetites. And the people of Sodom and Gomorrah were whores. They had sex with people who were underage, with children. They had sex with family members, incest. They had sex with animals. They gang raped people. They had sex with people of the same gender. They had sex with people who were not married to. I mean, absolutely nothing was off limits for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. When it came to their sexual appetite, they just fulfilled it. Didn't matter what it was. And so Jude does what many other biblical authors do. He uses them as a case study of what bad things happen when we leave our desires completely unrestrained in any way. And in Jude chapter one, verse seven, Jude says, don't forget Sodom and Gomorrah. And their neighboring towns, they were filled with immorality and every kind of sexual perversion. And so those cities were destroyed by fire and they serve as a warning of the eternal fire of God's judgment. Jude saying these were places of such incredible immorality that God could not allow it to continue. But remember what Jude has already told us, that God, his desire for us is more and more mercy, peace, and love. And so that's that discussion that God had with Abraham. Opportunity, yet again, for people to repent. God even sends angels into the city to try and convince the people to repent and to spare them, but they refuse. And so the cities are destroyed. And often in the Old Testament, Fire is used for its purifying work. It's used in the sense that we might use intense fire to purify for metallurgical work. The intense heat of a flame that purifies gold or other precious materials. And so Jude uses this same object lesson and says, these cities were destroyed because they were filled with such incredible impurity that to allow it to continue would have been unhealthy and unwise, and unkind. And the lesson that Jude wants us to take away from this is that we need to pay attention to areas in our own lives where we allow willful and deliberate and persistent sin to take root, because it will have serious consequences in our lives. We even have phrases in the English language for this. We say things like, well, you can't play with fire and not get burned. And the same is true, friends, if you, in your life and mine, willfully, knowingly, intentionally, deliberately persist in patterns of thinking and acting that violate God's purposes and plans for you. You can't invite those things into your life and not pay the consequences of it. Greed. When greed gets a hold of your soul and begins to take root in your life and you allow it to go unchecked, willfully, deliberately persisting in it, it will consume you and it will destroy you. And that's what Jude is saying here. And that's why he's so fired up about false teaching because his main point in the whole book is that false teaching is dangerous because bad ideas have bad consequences when we act on them. Al Thiessen, uh, attends here at Jericho and Al is very fond of saying it's one of his great little phrases in order to think correctly or sorry in order to act correctly you have to think correctly right so if you think correctly you're going to act correctly and Jude is saying The opposite, he's saying conversely, when your thinking is bad, when you think in an unhealthy way, unhealthy actions are going to flow out of those things. And so you want to pay attention to that. Now, next week we're going to talk about a, a few ways that we need to think about this, and one is we need to just be circumspect about this, that not all bad ideas are heresies. So you don't need to immediately get onto Twitter or onto Facebook and preach at everybody about all of their wrongheaded ideas. That's not helpful. And also, not all heresies are equally dangerous. Some of them are very dangerous, and some of them are subtle and require a little bit of correction um, but heresy also, we're going to see this next week, is about more than just wrong thinking. It's about how we act and how we treat people around us. So what should we do? We have these three case studies that Jude says and a serious warning about false teaching. But you might be left wondering, well, I don't know, Jude. How would I identify falsehood then? How would I know heresy if I saw it? Like, what's the criteria for false? teaching well jude's actually already given us this back in jude chapter 1 verse 4 when jude says i say this i'm warning you about false teaching because some ungodly people have wormed their way into your churches and what are they saying this is his criteria saying that god's marvelous grace allows us to live immoral lives the condemnation of such people was recorded long ago for they have denied our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So what's the criteria for false teaching? Number one, it denies Jesus as master and Lord. If someone says something like, well, Jesus is great, super good for you to believe in Jesus, but you wouldn't want to put all your eggs in the Jesus basket, would you? I mean, we all have our own ways to get to God, right? Notice James's use of the word our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. False teaching is often just a subtle addition or a subtle subtraction from the truth. But Jude's point is also about that Jesus is master and Lord of our lives. In other words, Jude's saying, Hey, don't get confused. My half brother was not just a nice person and a moral example for us to follow, he was indeed who he said he was, the king and Lord of all. And so there's no corner of the universe, there's no corner of our lives that that does not impact. And so Jude wants us to ask an implication question then. If Jesus is master and Lord, is he master and Lord of my life? Or is there an area of my life that I have closed off to God and said, I will let you in God, but I have some conditions around it. And the way that I do this in my own life and assess this is I use my imagination. I'll sit down and I will picture my life like a house. And I'll invite Jesus to walk with me into different areas of the house, different rooms that might represent an area of my life. So I'll walk in my imagination into the office and I'll ask, Jesus, the office is like where we pay bills. It's where we do things like taxes. It's where our finances are kind of generated out of. God, would you give me insight? Are you in this season of my life, in the way I'm living now, in the way we are conducting our family finances right now? What's your thoughts on that? Are you Lord over that? Or are there things that we need to adjust? I walk into the family room and I say, Jesus. If you're Lord, you get to set the agenda for how we parent. How are we doing in that category? Give us wisdom and insight for that. I walk into the media room in my mind and I ask, Jesus, have I watched anything that has not been healthy for me? I walk into the bedroom and say, God, are you Lord over my marriage? And then I go through the whole house and ask Jesus to check the closets and under the beds to see if I'm hiding anything and say, Jesus, I want you to be Lord of all of my life. Is there any area that I have closed off to you? Maybe that would be a helpful exercise for you, a spiritual practice to put into your life of actually just walking through those rooms in your imagination or even physically in your house and saying, Jesus, are you in charge? And see what, and listen for what God says to you. Because teaching that is false denies that jesus is lord it says things like well jesus can be lord over your whole life but don't worry about the finance piece of your life just do whatever you want there that's false teaching the second criteria for false teaching is related to this and teaching is false if it undermines the call to holy living if someone is teaching a practice or an attitude that is going to lead you to less connection with god and other people, it's false teaching, and it should be rejected. It's like if you're listening to a radio station, and it starts getting really staticky. You try and figure out, well, what can you do to try and get rid of that static so that the the song that you want to listen to is clear? Again, do you need to adjust the antenna? Whatever it is. And the same thing is true for our lives. False teaching often invites things into our lives that create static. So that we can't hear from God effectively. And it undermines that call to persist in living a life that is holy. Now, Jude isn't saying that this is a call to moral perfection. And like Pastor Wally reminded us this morning, you know, none of us have gone through the week perfect And so this is not a call to just give up. This is a call then to say, are there areas of my life that I am willfully again rejecting and persisting in disobedience to God? And the action step here is just simply repentance. Repentance is a biblical word meaning to change direction. It's as if I've been walking down this road, making choices to head in this direction, and suddenly I realize I can't hear God very clearly anymore. Things seem fuzzy to me now. It's like we're out of touch. The reception is getting distant. And to repent is to turn around and to say, okay, God, I'm coming back to you again. I want to hear more clearly and carefully from you again. I want to get rid of any of those things in my life that would be creating static. I want to lean into community and accountability. And, friends, today the call for you might be to just get back on that path of repentance. And the final area, and we'll finish with this, is that false teaching mocks God's glorious grace. Because, friends, Jude says that we have been given such freedom and liberty in joy in Jesus. But these people that have been executing and promoting false teaching, have just said, you know what you should do? Live however you want. From Sunday at 1201 until the next Sunday at 1029, say a quick prayer, Jesus forgive everything I've done wrong this week, when you walk through the doors and you'll be fine. And Jude says, you know what? That's actually mocking God's grace. See, sometimes we can be tempted to look with an activity or an action and say, you know what, it's not that bad. I'll just do a little bit of that. I mean, just a little bit of dabbling in the occult. That's not going to hurt me, is it? Or, I mean, just a little bit of gossiping. I mean, this person really, this is like a very juicy piece of gossip. I'm just going to do it and then I'm going to ask for forgiveness afterwards. Or I'm just going to overspend a little bit. And then I'll start being generous when I get that back in line. But for now, it's just about me. It needs to be about me. Friends, whenever we tell ourselves things like, it's easier to ask for forgiveness than permission, we are mocking God's glorious grace. His grace that led the people of Israel out of Egypt. His grace that is greater than all of our sins. But his grace does not give us a license to sin the incredible grace that flows freely and powerfully from the cross and the empty tomb into your life and mine. And so we would do well to ask ourselves as the team comes and they're gonna lead us in a song that helps us think about this. Are there areas in my life that I need to seek forgiveness and not just pretend that I have God's permission to run around doing whatever I want? The words to this song talk about the language of surrender and the language of repentance. And I want to encourage you to take this time. You don't need to sing just because the words are up on the screen. This is a new song to us here at Jericho. And so you may want to just take some time to do a searching and fearless moral inventory of your life under the leadership of the Spirit of God. And the purpose for that is not to just heap shame and guilt on you where you think, oh, I'm such a horrible person, but the purpose of that is to say, God, I declare again my need for you, for your grace and your love and your mercy. I know that you desire to give it to me, but I need to come to you in repentance and ask for it and invite you to do it. I want to remind you too about our prayer team.